Hello, and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and as always, I am joined by Tim McIntosh and Angelina Stanford. Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. The, I'm joined by Angelina McIntosh. Tim Tim Stanford. I don't know. We'll mix it up. Uh, Perfect. That way you both get Mick top Stanford. billing. Mick Stanford. Exa- exactly. Angie Tim Mick Stanford. Um, how's it going, y'all? It's going good. Should I stop and run and get my teddy bear for this episode? <laughs> <laughs> to establish a Well, he might prop. have something to say. Like, I think I just, I think that's going to become my device for this series of, of episodes. Like, anytime y'all ask me something that makes me uncomfortable, I'm just going to be like, well, Aloysius says that was very rude to ask me that. <laughs> yeah, we could, pose, you- we could kind of pose Aloysius the teddy bear as sort of like, one you know is our alter ego that says things that you know we would rather not say in our own voice so your so your bear is really our pompous then is what you're getting at <laughs> yeah do, right do but but are you allowed to have a bear called aloysius doesn't it need to have its own, like don't you have to have your own name for it i guess so what okay. would your bear i was name just going to say what would you what, what angelina oh. stanford's pompous bear be called Gosh. My pompous bear. Whoa! I don't. I don't know. I feel well, like maybe y'all ought to suggest it to me. I, if there's one thing we know about Aloysius, it's Aloysius, it's that he's pompous. We learned that early on. So anybody who's listening is very confused right now, and, and has not read the book yet. Um, we dear are listeners. Dear uh, listeners, there is a teddy bear named Aloysius who is kind of the friend, the imaginary yet real stuffed friend of one of the main characters in the book. And so we're already riffing on that. If I had a bear, if I had a teddy bear as alter ego, I know what his name would be. Tell me. Cletus McPherson. <laughs> Just, I can't breathe. <laughs> Cletus, Cletus McPherson wants more pickled pig's feet. I was going to say, is Cletus McPherson like... Is he was he like a settler in the Appalachians? Yeah, and in all of Aloysius's taste, you know, he has like a taste for like probably fine sherry and uh, caviar and champagne. My Cletus like has kind of Appalachian tastes: pickled pig's feet, pork rinds. See, some okay, of our so listeners are feeling assaulted butter. right now. I, th- I think <laughs> my I think my teddy bear might be Aunt Agatha. <laughs> Just like really disapproving and judgmental. That's my inner voice. Angelina, you're doing this wrong. Stop. <laughs> oh, dear. This is, yeah, we're going to insult a lot of people, but, you know, if we keep going down <laughs> oh, this path. Access for Woodhouse. It's Bertie Wooster. <laughs> David, do you think that our readers, I'm, I'm going to put you on the hook. Do you think oh. that our readers have like a strong affection for Appalachian cuisine? I hey, feel man. like Chuck Hicks is already it got only- you in sites for this it only takes one right <laughs> <laughs> so anyway we are as as uh tim as as we've indicated we are here to talk about brideshead revisited even on was what he called his magnum opus um, yes and i'm glad you said he because there was some confusion on our facebook page about whether a man or a woman had written this book oh no this was a man evelyn wall was a man it wasn't <laughs> evelyn it was evelyn oh, no and i just think man it it does not sound, it's not written in a woman's voice. That would be one weird woman writing this book. <laughs> well, Maybe it's a weird man writing this book, but it would definitely be a weird woman. <laughs> that is true. Um, we can do some biographical information if necessary, and I'm sure that will come up as we go through the book. But he was generally speaking a contemporary of novelists like Henry, Henry Green, um, Graham Green, um, Woodhouse. He was, he was from that, that kind of time frame. Um, after the war between and after world war between the wars and then again after world war ii um converted to catholicism uh, later in his life uh was friends so he was not a convert when he wrote this book no he well he was a convert when he wrote this book yes he this was a book that was intended he, he there's letters with his editor in which he describes that he was intending um to write about the spirit you know to write about the spiritual life to write about the idea of conversion um and we'll talk about that a lot i mean i think this is essentially a book about about conversion and how that works um or how it can work um certainly like flannery o'connor it's 
you know, got a lot of Catholic ideas embedded in it. Um, but it also goes much deeper than that. He wasn't trying to write a, I don't, I don't believe, well, maybe he was, but he, I don't think that it was meant to be specifically, um, Catholic book, but it is all steeped in theology. Um, he once said that to his editor that the whole thing is steeped in theology, but I agree that the theologians won't recognize it, which is an interesting, <laughs> interesting, say, interesting way of putting it. But, uh, before we get too much further, I, we need to say a quick word from some sponsors. Uh, Roman Roads Media, as you know, has been sponsoring in April and May, and they are good friends who publish Wes Callahan's Old Western Culture. Um, their their classical Christian curriculums are designed for homeschoolers, curricula rather, are designed for homeschoolers and homeschool co-ops, and they're back with another giveaway. If you've been listening, you know all about this. So uh, all you got to do to win a, one of the uh, Old Western Culture series featuring Wes Callahan um, is to comment on the Facebook post on our on, on the main Cersei page where we post this, the link to this particular episode and leave a comment saying which unit of the old Western culture series you would like to win. And of course that series comes with workbooks, discussion questions, readers. And then of course, Wes Callahan's drawing from decades of teaching experience. And when he teaches, you're getting history, literature, theology, politics, philosophy, and so much more all kind of integrated together in the trademark Wes Callahan way. Um, and then, you know, three days after uh, those comments are, after this episode is posted, uh, Roman Rhodes, the crew over there, will uh, draw at random a name from from all the names that posted a comment, choosing one of the the, the uh, sets, and they will choose a winner that way. And you can browse their series over at RomanRhodesMedia.com. So please make sure you do that. But then we also have another sponsor for this summer. What? Yeah, we've got someone who's sponsoring, and this is connected to someone we know, Angelina. Um, hey, Angelina, do you know, either have or know of a ninth through 12th grade student that would benefit from an engaging seminar style grade books course that could also earn two high school credits? What? <laughs> well, it just so happens that Close Reads contributor <laughs> Professor Tim McIntosh is offering four different high school grade books courses live online at Scole Academy. So if you would like your high school students to have a deep engagement with the great books and develop a love for the classics under the tutelage of a professor like Tim McIntosh, you can visit scoleacademy.com to learn more. I don't know. That might be worth doing one day. That guy's a hack. That's what I've heard. <laughs> He's a hack. Actually, you know, when I first heard about it, I'm going to go ahead and say this on the air. We're just going to air it out right here. You know, when it came up on my Facebook, I was like, wait, this is how this is how I'm finding out that Tim McIntosh is now my competitor in the world of great books, online teaching. I find it out on Facebook. So, of course, I texted him that we were going to have to have a fight and loser leave the Internet. <laughs> so <laughs> Apparently, it hasn't happened. We <laughs> Does loser leave the internet means that only one of you will be on the show after that? <laughs> and that person will get top billing on close rates. <laughs> it's <laughs> called victory by attrition. <laughs> before, yeah, let's do a trial by ordeal. Let's do it in Austin. Me and Tim, trial by ordeal. <laughs> before we know it, I'm just going to be sitting here talking to myself. <laughs> I know. You might already be talking to yourself and two teddy bears. So. I usually feel that way i gotta say angelina um, what would a trial by ordeal between the two of us look like that's a, i'm really curious about oh no that. Gra- graham and i will tickets. definitely put together a plan <laughs> it's probably gonna be like a three-day tournament kind of you know, like funeral games for achilles it's just gonna be all out that sounds great we're gonna have a competition to see who can speak the quietest okay i, I concede it won't be me that would that <laughs> that would be an ordeal that i would want to witness um <laughs> Well, you know, we got to pile on in terms of making fun of you. It's, it's not a show without making fun of you at least once, right? Uh, but yeah, uh, thanks to Classical Academic Press, who is behind Scully Academy for sponsoring for this summer. They're going to be, uh, you know, talking. We're going to be talking up Tim's classes. So he's got four different courses. Tim, which what are you going to be teaching? What courses? Ancient Greek An- and Did Roman you say history. Anxious? Yes. <laughs> it's anxious all about literature. characters from the Greek and Roman period. I was going to say, anxious literature is just what we talk about on Close Reads. Yeah, no doubt. It'd be a little bit redundant. Ancient Greek and Roman literature, medieval and Renaissance literature. Let me back up. The classes are kind of designed, they're literature and history classes combined. So we'll be reading these great works. We'll be reading Shakespeare. We'll be reading Plato. Like we'll read the Defense of Socrates or the Trial of Socrates. But we'll also kind of like cover the history that kind of embeds and surrounds those books. 
So ancient Greek and Roman literature, medieval and Renaissance literature, world literature, which is basically an excuse to read really great, a really great Russian novel. And um, finally, British and English literature, excuse me, British and English, British and American <laughs> literature. And that one, that class will kind of concentrate on in the scope of world history, more contemporary things. So we're thinking like 1600s to the present. That's the plan. Okay. Well, that sounds awesome, Tim. Well, I'm, I'm welcome. Welcome to the world of internet teaching. I'm really, really looking forward to it. I, I love what I know about Scholay and I love the opportunity to do this. And yeah, I can't wait to get started. I got to tell you, and this is just, this is, this is, I'm going to give our, our readers a little like locker room talk between two internet online okay. great books teachers. Locker room talk can be dangerous. <laughs> You're right. I just meant like private conversation, not like Trump locker room would, talk. Would you like oh, me? Yes. Would you like, there, but... would you like me to just not like take my headphones off and do I need to leave now? <laughs> no, but I was going to say. Listeners, please mute for 30 seconds. <laughs> Just, just props to all these homeschool parents because seriously, you are going to get to teach the best of the best students. I pinch myself. Like, it would take a serious act of God to get me back into a classroom. Like, I just, it's so not in, night and day to walk into an inline, online classroom and you're with kids who want to be there, who have, no one's, you know, I, I don't ever have to convince somebody, did you do your reading? They've read, they're excited, they're ready to talk and engage. They're incredibly well read. I'm always amazed that I can make some obscure literary reference and there'll be kids in the class who go, oh, yeah, my mom read me that. And it's just fan. You're going to love it. You're going to love no. it. These, these kids are amazing. My brief exposure, my slight exposure to kind of classical Christian educated young people has been overwhelmingly not – I've not been impressed. I've been kind of stunned. Yes. I <laughs> Am I, David, am I allowed to mention a specific parent on the air or should I just use a first name? I thought you were going to ask, a, were gonna ask me if I'm, you're allowed to use the word stunned. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's up to you. Uh, uh, Heidi White is one, was one of the hosts of a Searcy conference. What oh, you're so allowed like to say Two Heidi. years ago. Okay. Her son, how old, is, how old is her son, Angelina? I think he's 12. Okay. He, we were out on the he back deck. And I can't remember, somehow we stumbled upon a conversation about Shakespeare, and he said that he had just recited one of the sonnets. And I said, you just recited one of the sonnets from memory? And he said, yes. And he just rolled out with the whole sonnet right then and there like it was no thing in the world. And I remember just thinking, that is nothing that I could never have done that when I was 12 years old. I wish that I could have done that when I was 12 years old. I was just, I literally was blown away. That was almost for me, I'm like, I had always been a believer in the kind of education that we offer. And that to me was sort of like a secondary conversion moment, conversion moment. I was like, this is not just a great education. This might be the way to save the world. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know? I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Tim, I, I, I just tickled all the time when I think, you know, I've got a, I've got an online classroom of freshmen, <laughs> high school freshmen, and they're so much more well-read than people I went to graduate school with. I mean, no. Oh, abs- I believe that. Tim, it might just be that young master white is just a lot smarter than you though. Oh, well, that's, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> Do you guys do you guys find this? We should at some point get the bride's head revisited. Yeah, eventually. Do you guys get to this point where you're like, I need emotionally to kind of like get really comfortable with the fact that this kind of generation of um, classically educated students are going to surpass me, their teacher, in ability in like twelve minutes, really quickly. <laughs> but that's so exciting to me, though. I love that. I that's love how I feel about moments. our listeners. <laughs> I love those moments in my class when a student says something to me and I go, oh, I never saw that before. I never saw it. Like, I just, you know, I feel like I'm still getting the education too. I, that's my favorite. Those moments that's just, boy, that's when I just really geek out and get excited. And we all get excited and they feel good because they trumped me and I feel good because look what a good teacher I am. They right. trumped me. <laughs> <laughs> it's win-win. That's kind of what okay. teaching's all about though, right? It is. It is. I well, yeah. Well, we probably should get to the book, but that's sad. I would be so sad if I thought my students couldn't surpass me. 
Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. not. It's not. There's just a. There's an no, extent to which you like I, recognize my job is to make myself obsolete, and I, speaking for myself, I'd prefer to not be obsolete, <laughs> but it is kind of part of the telos of my job. I don't think you'll make yourself obsolete. I mean, we're just we're just the guides. We just point the way. Hey, Angelina. Yeah. I just need to give you a little PSA. Uh, I just Uh-oh. got a, I just got a message from the other room. Oh. Graham okay. says he's trying to go under the knife for his charm reduction surgery, but they don't have strong enough <laughs> anesthetic in the hospital to compete with your voice. <laughs> uh, okay, I just have to, I asked him this the other day. I, I told him that I felt like Close Reads was turning into the Conan O'Brien show, and now we have little skits that we do, and one of them <laughs> is the daily text from Graham. And so then my legitimate question to Graham was, are you really sending those texts, or is David just insulting me and blaming you? <laughs> I, I'm not going to yeah, comment on that. Okay, there? here's what the thing. The if I did it, I'm really clever, and if he did it... <laughs> He's really clever, so I'm just not going to say anything. <laughs> no one wants to. Yeah, oh, just keep it, keep it, keep it, uh, keep it vague there about who's exactly I've got the to clever. Say, I've got to say, charm reduction <laughs> surgery. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flat out steal that. That was just, that was pure, pure gold. I'm gonna text him back, laugh, cry that laughing cry emoji. Anyway, speaking of Next laughing and crying, we should show. we should probably get onto the book. Um, as I said earlier, we are here to talk about. I said Aloysius says that was very rude. <laughs> I'll tell him that <laughs> we are here to talk about uh, Brideshead Revision, Brideshead Revisited, the sacred and profane memories of Captain Charles Ryder. What a great title! Uh, when was the first time you read this, Tim? First time I read it was a year, maybe 18 months ago, largely at the behest of your dad. Okay. And because he speaks so highly of this book. Mm-hmm. And Angela, you read it like 40 I years ago or something? I think in 1992. So 20, 25 years ago? Okay. So when you read it 25 years ago, No, Angela- 1995. I got the syllabus right in front of me. 1995. A whole different century ago. What, um... um what was your first impressions back then as a young, impressionable college student encountering this book, book for the first time? I liked it. I, I, I liked it. It was uh, definitely out of my, you know, it was out of my wheelhouse. I've never, that's never, modern literature has never really been my thing, you know, but I had a, had, a, had a time period requirement I had to fill. So I ended up in this modern British lit class, but I liked it. I liked it. Actually, I dug up my, <laughs> I dug up the paper I wrote for that class. It's called "The Way to a Man's Stomach." The way to a man's heart is through his stomach: an analysis of dining in *Brideshead Revisited*. Because it, of how much description there is of food. It's really interesting. You should mention that actually, because when that was one of the things that he got criticized for was the kind of uh, the the degree to which the story includes eating and drinking and things like that. And it's he he later on he came back and kind of regretted how much he put in there, but he says that he he well he said he wrote that book when he was in convalescence after having a parachute an army I think an Air Force related parachute accident in 1943 and 44 somewhere in that range, so he couldn't really move he wasn't like the food he was being given was terrible and all that so he he had that on his brain, and so he was and he, he was kind of like taking what he wished he could be eating and drinking and putting it into the book, which is really interesting. Oh, that's really interesting. But see, Mama, what I argued in the paper is that you can tell something about the nature of the person, the character, by mm-hmm. the way they interact with food. Hmm. We'll have to, I think that's an interesting, we should keep that throughout the, that kind of through line through our reading, a point of comparison. Give us a, give us a preview then. So what is Sebastian like? With food. Oh, well, I don't know. I, I didn't read the paper. I just found oh, it. Oh, you didn't read the paper you wrote 25 years ago. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I remember it got an A and she really liked it. But. Tim. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, but I'm going to look for it as we read because I'm, oh. I'm still interested. Just like with Wind in the Willows, we talked about food and with The Hobbit and Woodhouse. Like This just seems to be a really English thing to talk about food. Uh, Wah actually compared 
Sebastian and Charles to Rat and Mole in The Wind in the Willows. That those were characters. Really? They were inspirational in some ways. Really interesting. So, Tim, you read it not that long ago, but for the first time. And what was your first impression? What was your first experience with it like? Well, I kind of read it beside one of my favorite books, which is um, The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that I read The Sun Also Rises at the same time. I just mean Ano- I kind of read it as... Another book my dad likes a lot. Yeah. And we and your dad and I did a podcast on the two books kind of comparing and contrasting their I don't know, kind of like how they fit in the demise of kind of like the shared values of western society because and I think mm-hmm. in in a way both of the books are doing something similar. They're coming from very different authors with very different convictions. Mm-hmm. Hemingway for sure was yeah. um an atheist, kind of an existential, an existentialist. Um, and so I read the book the first time that I read Brideshead Revisited. I read it mainly as a kind of um, assessment and rejection of the kind of secularization and materialization of Western culture. There's there's this move happening in the book. And we can get a glimpse of it in the prologue through the character Hooper. There's this move toward kind of the bureaucrat mindset, um, uh, the depletion of kind of like shared, uh, shared metaphysics. And I think Hemingway was doing something very similar. Hemingway, both Hemingway and Waugh, it seems to me, have regrets that this is happening. Like so many, especially British and American authors in the late part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, there's a deep sense of remorse about what is happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems like those Christian authors tend to look back and kind of cherish what was behind us. Whereas for Hemingway, I'm not sure there's so much of a sense, I don't know how to say it. He regrets what's happening but I don't think that he looks back at an earlier time um, with this sort of like fond, fond uh, nostalgia that that Waugh seems to look back with. Mm. So you had when you read it, you got this real sense of nostalgia in Brideshead. Yeah, it was really strong. And I'm curious, reading it a second time through if that nostalgia will shine so bright or if it was mainly because I was reading it alongside the sun also rises. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Comparing them. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, what we're going to do today is we had initially thought we were going to talk about through chapter three, but the way the chapters break up, that's kind of an awkward place. Um, and it leads to some awkward divisions as we move forward, as far as how we break up the, the readings per episode. So today we're going to talk about through the, from the prologue through chapter two, and largely we're going to be just, kind of setting things up and making sure that we're clear on all the characters and some of the things that are going on. And, um, and then we're going to talk a lot more deeply about the plot and all the themes and stuff as they come up. We're not going to, you know, there's lots of themes and lots of plot points in the book and, um, they're all kind of wrapped around each other. So we're not gonna be able to cover everything, but, um, you know, your, your questions as listeners will definitely guide our conversation moving forward too. But, um, well, how do you envision the rest of the reading going? I know there's been a lot of chatter on the Facebook page about the pacing. So we'll do through chapter two today. And then what do you think going forward? How will we do it? And then next week, we'll talk about chapters three and four. So if you did read through chapter three, you're a little ahead. And then I think we'll probably just do five because it's pretty long. I think five, maybe 50 pages. And then um, so if we do five and then I think probably six and seven or six and then seven through seven and eight. And then if you have the original edition, there's an updated edition that came out in 1959, but when it was originally published, it had two books and the second book is just two chapters towards the end. So we'll do a single episode on that. Um, I don't know exactly where the breakup is in the current one in the, in the updated version. I don't know where the, the, the breakup is exactly. We'll post on Facebook. We'll post the schedule and pin it to the top of the, to the group for people who want to read along exactly, you know, each week, with us who, who maybe haven't read, read ahead or <clears throat> are not a little behind who want to read exactly with us. We'll post that. Um, but for now we'll just count on this being through chapter two and then three and four, and then we'll do five. So that'll be the first three episodes. 
Um, I want to talk about the way Wa begins this book. So we have this prologue, and and we it takes a while to get to Charles Ryder, who's kind of our narrator, our first person narrator, main character. Um, it takes a while for us to get to his experiences, you know, as a young man, because we have all this stuff with the army. What is the effect, and why do you think we get this lengthy period at the beginning of the book with him sitting around in the army, basically? Well, I loved the prologue. I loved it, and why? You know, I'm, I'm trying to I'm articulate not saying you what shouldn't. it was. I'm no, just right? No, sure. I, I, I guess because we start off seeing Charles Ryder at a transition stage in his life, namely that he has come into disillusionment, hmm. and then in the midst of that disillusionment, finding himself back in this place a long time ago, and you know, he he weeps about it and. Uh, so this so is what, it ends up, I guess, being two counterpoints, two, two different significant moments in his life. Like almost at the end of some kind of continuum, two points on the end. On the, right. Like, so the, the, his, his meeting Sebastian and what's going to happen at Brideshead ends up being this incredibly formative thing. And now we're, we're in this second stage of Charles's life with this disillusionment. Well, and to speak to what Tim was saying, I guess that that's one way of ramping up the nostalgia, right? Because if you just dropped into it when he's young, that sense of nostalgia isn't quite as heavy. But right now, when you have a character who's older looking back, uh, the sense of nostalgia and uh, nostalgia and disillusionment are all are often coupled together, and so that disillusionment can can lend itself to kind of creating a sense of nostalgia. Tim, did you like the prologue or as much as Angelina did, or do you feel like many readers do that it's kind of a slog? I, I, I felt like thematic with Angelina, I think it sets the book up well. There is this, I think Angelina is exactly right. There's a sense that kind of like even the blighted landscape of the army camp, um, will be, is setting up a juxtaposition with the kind of voluptuousness of the dinner table that we'll experience in chapters one and two. Hmm. So I think thematically, it is thematically more than I like its execution. Okay. So, what didn't you like about the execution? It's a slog. I like that word. I don't want to change the word. It's, um, <laughs> I mean, do you not like Victorian novels, self- Tin? Do you not like Victorian no, novels? No, I don't. Wait, I hold don't. on, hold on. There are people who like those. Well, here's the thing, right? <laughs> okay, wait. Okay, this I like. Whenever I talk about this now, people laugh, and I guess it's funny. But I got my master's in Victorian literature. No, that's not surprising uh, at all. But of course, no. I went backwards from there and very quickly fell in love with the Middle Ages and 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 never left it. But I got my master's in Victorian literature, and so. You know, I'm I'm thinking as we're talking. You you asked me what was my first impression of the book. I, so I'm being forced to take this modern British lit class because I have a time period requirement. I really didn't want to take it, but I liked *Brideshead Revisited*. It was the first book we read in the class. I liked it because I thought it read like a Victorian novel. <laughs> so, oh. so, so, Tim, so yeah, with a Victorian novel, I always go into it saying, "Oh, you got to give it the first hundred pages just to introduce all the characters." So, I never thought of the prologue as being a slog. It was just, right, right. "Oh yeah, well, what else can you expect? We got to set this up, right?" Victorian novels do not start in the middle of things, right? They, well, I, I do think that there is something of like there's, it does feel at times early on like a Dickens novel stylistically yeah. some of the themes yes and there's a lot of characters and almost like these slapstick moments mm-hmm. yeah angelina can you give our readers kind of a quick i'm sorry you, you're breaking, yeah, you're up breaking up up. and writers are say that you're breaking up tim can you say that again i'll try again <clears throat> yeah can you guys am i breaking up now you're good no i hear you um angelina for our readers can you give an overview of the kind of stylistic habits of Victorian Okay, I, you broke up, but I think you asked me to say what are the stylistic habits of Victorian writers? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, they're very long-winded. <laughs> I like to say Dickens got paid by the word and he was planning on making a fortune. Uh, so <laughs> they're very long-winded, and lots did. of characters. Um, 
in terms of narrative, you've got, you know, when you talk about the development of the novel, the novel starts off with the epistolary novel, and it takes a long time before authors figure out the best way to tell a story in terms of point of view. So for a long time, it was just first person, first person. You get a lot of that at the Victorian period, but they tend to move a little more into the omniscient narrator with the author breaking through and, and commenting so that they make sure you know what to think about what they're doing. Very heavily on um, social commentary themes, so lots and lots of and, and in that wall is definitely following Dickens and Hardy in particular with his concerns about the effects of the Industrial Revolution on England and the changes that come with that and the changes to the aristocracy and social instability. So uh, Victorian novels are very reform-oriented, and they're very, very long, and it, it honestly takes 100 pages just for them to introduce all the characters and Thank- set up all the themes. It's, it's, they're slow. <laughs> Thankfully, we're not getting... Um- this isn't this quite to the same degree as like oh yeah definitely mo- not you know Hardy, um, but it does it feels to me more like Hardy than Dickens, D- don't you think? I don't know Hardy well, so I I can't comment on that. Um, okay. And my and I, I'm not saying that it was uh, it's exactly like Dickens. There's just something about it as I was reading. I was like, hey, this is kind of Dickensian. Um, one of the things, you, Tim, you used a word that I think is really helpful when, I mean, it's helpful for reading any literature, but it's especially helpful for reading this book, and that word is juxtaposition, or maybe you just said juxtaposed. But I think that as we read this book, it's going to be really helpful for us to keep in mind the various things that he is setting up as opposites um, or as contrasting ideas or characters oh, and yeah. things like that. So you get it right away in the title, right? The Sacred and Profane Memories of Captain Charles Ryder. You get it in between the institution of the university and the institution of the church, because the two big things so far have been Oxford and the chapel. Right, and you get it. Um, you get it even in the way in the um, in Sebastian's own family. You know, when Anthony Blanche is de- in chapter two is describing um, to um, to Charles Sebastian's family. There's this contrast between. Um, between Brideshead, Sebastian's older brother, and between Sebastian. There's the yes. contrast between Lady um, uh, Marchmain, right? What's, is that, what, what is it? Um, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, right. Lady Marchmain and, um, and Julia. And there's this contrast between Lady Marchmain and... Julia and, and Sebastian. Yeah, and there's, so there's all... I mean, that's the way of characters. Because they're mirrors, yeah. That's the nature of characters themselves. But this book in particular, I think, is being very... <clears throat> um, purposeful in how he sets them up because um each of them there's obviously a gray area but each of them kind of can fall there's these there's these going back and forth between the sacred and profane that these characters are constantly doing but it's also like o'connor i think you know we talked a lot about the idea of o'connor's writing about a place that is christ haunted and i think Mm -hmm. that this book in its own way is sort of christ haunted that there is constantly like it's constantly steeped, steeped in theology, and even in the most profane scenes or the most profane places, there's always this sense of the spiritual hovering over or around it. Yes, and in particular, he brings that out with the architecture. Did you pick up on that? Yes, like, there's yes. so much detail to architecture, and, and I'm I'm trying to figure out how best to articulate it because I feel like that is a that is a very English novel kind of thing to do to to focus on place and the architecture and the ancientness of the place and also that you know uh, ancient architecture yeah. in England is just going to be religious that's just what it is going to be okay let's let's look at a I marked a specific passage that I think gets really into this that I wanted to focus on for part of the show today for me it's it's uh, chapter 35 it is in chapter one it's towards the end of chapter one and it's when Sebastian and Charles are visiting uh, the home the home um, sh- uh, hold on one second. I got to send a text real fast. And even when um, Charles's cousin comes to visit, and his whole point is change rooms. There's just so much emphasis on place, right? Your place, your physical dwelling, your the architecture of it. So much talk about Brideshead as a home. Yes. Okay. So they're talking to his nurse, or not nurse, his nanny. Um, and you see where it says, um, ah, cricketing all day long. I expect like your brother. Okay. I've got nanny ring the bell. Is it after that? Oh, I see it. I see it. I see it. 36 on mine. 
Oh, and how about the fact that Sebastian says, this is where my family live, not this is my home. I mean, whew. Yeah, well, that's... Place, sense of place, yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a lot because Charles is dealing with that throughout his whole... Like, that's that's one of the big themes, internal struggles of his character, of a, a sort of placelessness, a, rude, a lack of rootedness. Right, and of course, he doesn't have a home either. That's where his father lives. But just before we leave the, the, the prologue, you know, he's wandering. He's in the army, but he's also wandering. He has no place and no purpose, right? Like he says, it's, it's just it's a shame to have all this training and not use it. And they never know where they're going. They're just moving from point A to point B, and they don't have an overall plan. It's just a, it's a tremendous metaphor, I think, for where Charles is in his, in his life. And the last thing I want to say, because I don't want to forget it, is the title. Brideshead Revisited. So, so Wa is foregrounding for us that everything in this story is through the memory of an older man now. Mm. Right? This is not as it's happening. This is through disillusioned older Charles's eyes. And he even makes mm. comments like, at the time, I probably would have thought blah, 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 but now I know. Mm. So, mm. just those kind of narrative layers for point of view and how to tell the story. Yeah. It's first mm. person, David, but it's find- first person distance. If I can make up the term. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Go ahead, Tim. What's that? Did you have, did you have a section you were going to read? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to read this, this section here in chapter two. So the part where it says, ah, cricketing all day long. They're talking. Um, they're visiting the house. They're reading Bride's Head. And they're talking with his nanny. And then um, <clears throat> she says, ah, cricketing all day long. I expect Angelina, why don't you read that next paragraph there? The one starting with that sentence? Yeah, yeah, or the that, that, that whole paragraph, yeah. Ah, cricketing all day long, I expect, like your brother. He found time to study, too, though. He's not been here since Christmas, but he'll be here for the agricultural, I expect. Did you see this piece about Julia in the paper? She brought it down for me. Not that it's nearly good enough of her, but what it says is very nice. The lovely daughter whom Lady Marchmain is bringing out this season, witty as well as ornamental, the most popular <laughs> debutante, well, that's no more than the truth. So it was a shame to cut her hair. Such a lovely head of hair she had, just like her ladyship's. I said to Father Phipps, it's not natural. He said, nuns do it. And I said, well, surely, Father, you aren't going to make a nun out of Lady Julia. The very idea. Tim, can you read the next paragraph? It was a charming room. Obviously, to conform with the curve of the... Whoa, wait a second. The well, walls were... Yeah, you're fading in and out bad. That's not the next paragraph. Sorry, I can't, we can't. Yeah, I can't hear what you're saying at all. Why don't you jump off and we'll call you back? My next paragraph is Sebastian and the old woman talked on. Is that what you have? That's what I have too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we heard his second sentence. Yeah, we must have missed. Room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it just cut him off. That good old Oregon internet. <laughs> Hey, is this better? Yeah. Ah, oh, yes. So you guys, I, you have a different second. Well, what is? No, we, we just we just lost some of your words. You're you're I good. See. Yeah, go ahead. Shall I, shall I read? Yeah. Sebastian and the old woman talked on. It was a charming room, oddly shaped to conform with the curve of the dome. The walls were papered in a pattern of ribbon and roses. There was a rocking horse in the corner and an oleograph of the sacred harp over the mantelpiece. The empty grate was hidden by a bunch of pampas grass and bulrushes. Laid out on the top of the chest of drawers and carefully dusted were the collection of small presents, which had been brought home to her at various times by her children, carved shell and lava, stamped leather, painted wood, china, bog oak, damascened silver, blue john, alabaster, coral, the souvenirs of many holidays. Okay, now let's jump ahead to the next page where it says he led me through a baize door. So they yeah. leave and then they're going to and then they're going to walk through this other. He wants to see more of the house. So go ahead and read that. He led me through a baize door into a dark corridor. I could dimly see a gilt cornice and vaulted plaster above, then opening a heavy, smooth swinging mahogany door, he led me into a darkened hall. Light streamed through the cracks in the shutters. Sebastian unbarred one and folded it back. The mellow afternoon sun flooded in over the bare floor, the vast twin fireplaces of sculptured marble, and covered ceiling frescoed with classic deities and heroes, 
the gilt mirrors in Scagliola pilasters, the islands of sheeted furniture. It was a glimpse only, such as might be had from the top of an omnibus into a lighted ballroom. Then Sebastian quickly shut out the sun. You see, he said, it's like this. I'll read this next bit. His mood had changed since we had drunk our wine under the elm trees, since we had turned the corner of the drive and he had said, well, you see, there's nothing to see. A few pretty things I'd like to show you one day. Not now. But there's the chapel. You must see that. It's a monument of Art Nouveau. The last architect to work at Brideshead had sought to unify its growth with a colonnade and flanking pavilions. One of these was the chapel. We entered it by the public porch. Another, lord, another door led direct to the house. Sebastian dipped his fingers in the water, crossed himself, and genuflected. I copied him. Why do you do that? he asked crossly. Just good manners. Well, you needn't on my account. You wanted to do sightseeing. How about this? The whole interior had been gutted, elaborately furnished, uh, refurnished and redecorated in the arts and crafts style of the last decade of the 19th century. Angels in printed cotton smocks, rambler roses, flower-spangled meadows, frisking lambs, texts in Celtic script, saints in armor covered the walls in an intricate pattern of clear, bright colors. There was a triptych of pale oak carved so as to give it the peculiar property of seeming to have been molded in plasticine. The sanctuary lamp and all the metal furniture were of bronze, hand-beaten to the patina of a pockmarked skin. The altar steps had a carpet of grass green, strewn with white and gold daisies. Golly, I said. It was Papa's wedding present to Mama. Now if you've seen enough, we'll go. <clears throat> so there's a lot of architecture here, but you get a lot of like the sacred and the profane kind of juxtaposed mm-hmm. against yeah. each other here. So even just where the nurse says, well, surely, Father, you aren't going to make a nun out of Lady Julia. The very yes. idea. So like they think she's saying... Like there's this threat of it, right? It's almost like a threat. You, how would, why, how could you possibly do that? So the, even the comment that nuns cut their hair. I mean, right. It was a shocking thing that good girls started cutting their hair in between the wars. This was a huge, 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 profound cultural shift that girls started cutting their hair, and it was considered just a mark of you know being a loose woman. And so for the priest to say, well, nuns do it. It's, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's blending. Oh, that's a great observation. The, the sacred and the profane together. Um, and and also I- in the names of our characters, Sebastian's a saint. Aloysius is a saint. Um, this has got to be deliberate, St. Sebastian. I think they even call him a martyr. Someone references him as a martyr or wannabe martyr at the beginning somewhere. Hmm. And Sebastian and do you guys, was a martyr. Do you guys think that our author is setting us up to kind of present two kind of interpretive – or I, I should, oh, yeah, two interpretive lenses through which we can kind of see, is this room an articulation of the sacred, or is this room something to be dismissed as sort of um, mere ornament? Do you think that's what's going to be happening in the book? I don't know that I've thought about it that way. For me, what is most effective is just the way he is creating this sense of the spiritual st- being like everything being steeped in the spiritual even if the characters aren't willing to see it or they're turning a blind eye to it or it's being used for a different purpose like you've got this very um beautiful but perhaps a little bit you know overdone chapel that is um a deeply it's a place that is deeply spiritual but it's kind of being used as a showroom right so, it's also yeah. a wedding gift, which also right. is a combination of the sacred and profane, because it's a romantic gesture, but it's also a religious sacrament. But but everything is like it's almost like there's a the sense of spirituals haunting everything, because you have even like the oleograph of the Sacred Heart over the mantelpiece. You've got um, the, he, uh, Sebastian thinks he recognizes the chapel as this kind of important place, but dismisses it as. A monument of Art Nouveau, right? So, like, right. they, it's it, they're like haunted by it. Sebastian even is haunted by. It. He's haunted by it enough to cross himself. To cross himself, yes. But what does and it mean? Reflect. Yeah, exactly. So it's like there's this ritual, as you're saying, Tim. It might just be nothing more than that. But he's doing it. It's not the ritual wouldn't mean much to someone like Sebastian. There's something that seems to be haunting him about it. It seems to be it something that yeah. he can't avoid. Because he turns to Charles and said, "Why did you do that?" I was going right. to say the same thing. Same thing. Yeah, it's that's and so David, your word "haunted" is a very it's a well chosen word because we get the impression that Sebastian is dismissive of all this, 
But then when someone kind of takes uh, a religious gesture in vain, he rebukes him. Right. So he's in this sort of tension is Sebastian. Yeah, it obviously means something to him because he tells Charles, don't 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 do that on my account. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to mean something. Uh, but yeah, and so it means something. He he's living his life in a way that is kind of counter to that, and he wants to avoid it. But when he's there, he can't help but recognize um, the deep meaning of the place. And so there's something within him that kind of like demands, like that forces him or or um, pushes him to respond how he knows he should. And in Charles, it's almost like Charles is not um, like it's a scary place, and Charles is not taking it seriously enough. Like, like right. Sebastian almost, it seems to me like Sebastian feels like if I don't do this, I could get smite down by the gods, right? Like, so there's mm-hmm. almost something ancient and pagan about it in a way, whereas Charles doesn't take it seriously enough. And he's, and Sebastian's saying, you have to take this seriously. It might seem like nonsense or it might be something we don't pay attention to when we're not here, but when we're here, we got to be careful. We got, we have to take this seriously. And if you're not going to take it seriously, you know, watch out. Yeah. You're in danger. <clears throat> Can I just tell you guys a little bit about this is will suit the theme of the podcast, Close Reads. Um, In reading this the second time, I always feel like the first time that I read a book, I'm hardly even capable of of hearing the book. I'm just kind of getting the plot. I'm learning the characters a little bit, but it's hard for me to really just – fully immerse myself in the book. But on the second read, I always think, oh, I will get, I will be able to finally, for the first time, read this book for the first time, even though it's my second time. So I'm looking forward to reading Brideshead Revisited as if for the first time. Um, one of my favorite theologians is a Swiss Catholic um, from the 20th century named Hans Earls von Balthasar, who is notoriously difficult to read, but yeah. so profound. Um, and one of one of von Balthasar's focuses in his theology is he says that theologians have tr- tended to concentrate on two of the three transcendentals. The three transcendentals being truth, goodness, beauty. He says that theologians tend to be a little bit obsessed with truth and goodness, but they don't really pay that much attention to the beautiful, like. Can you, we can think of plenty of theological tomes that talk about goodness, that talk about truth, but can you think of a single theological work that deals with beauty as its primary focus? So that's what he does. He writes primarily about beauty as an articulation of God and the world that God made and human beings' interactions within it. And I almost want to kind of like, I'm keeping my eye in Brideshead Revisited, um, toward that kind of focus, like is Waugh sort of writing a theology and aesthetics and aesthetical theology? And that's just something that I'm going to kind of keep tucked in my shirt pocket and maybe I'll pull it out when I do some reading and think, I wonder if this is kind of what he's trying to do to present a world that has fallen away. That was gorgeous not just gorgeous in ornament, but gorgeous in both ornament and meaning that he's, he is regretting the falling away of this world that he's regretting that the world is drifting deliberately or unintentionally away from that world. Yeah. And, and, that's the sense I got with those opening scenes in Oxford, right? And it's it's humorous because I think every generation tends to think of the current generation in college as being a bunch of screw-ups, right? But, but I mean, they're a bunch of screw-ups. They're not taking their education seriously. You have all these conversations. Oh, well, back in my day, young men didn't do such and such. And they're goofing off with their classes, and they're getting drunk all the time, and they're, you know, throwing up in random people's windows. And, so you and they're this- surrounded by this absolutely gorgeous architecture and centuries of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And did anybody else think about the fact that this would have been when Tolkien and Lewis were teaching at Oxford? I did not think about that. That's a great point. <laughs> well, it's interesting because we get in chapter one, we get introduced. I think we get introduced to these themes, these juxtapositions, certainly Sebastian and young Charles and their relationship. But then in chapter two, 
Actually, I don't know what I just said. That's in chapter one. In chapter two, we get a kind of a beginning sense of like conflict or trouble or whatever when his cousin, Charles's cousin, comes and offers a grand remonstrance um, and basically tells him, you know, these are people that you should not be hanging out with. And we get this sense of, we get the first sense of, you know, maybe not all, all is not well in paradise type type thing. Mm-hmm. Between yeah, just you know, yeah. Before he, we jump into that, though, can I just wanted to piggyback? Tim's got me thinking about you know if we're talking about a loss of things. So we've got at this point we have seen three inst well four if you count the army. Okay, but within the memory we have three institutions being represented, right? So the institution of the university, mm-hmm. the institution of the church, and the institution of marriage, and all three of those have been portrayed in a sense of decay, right? Huh, yeah. So what? the March main marriage is not, that's not, that's not right. right, and we don't know what the deal is. And even Charles's family, the mother died going mm-hmm. off to war. Like, everything's just, there's something wonky about it, right? Like, the world's turned upside down, which I argue is one of the themes of all of the literature um, during this time, is that this theme of the world is turned upside down. And what could be more upside down than my mother went off to war and died? Mm-hmm. My father's back. Well, and, and even if, it's you know, some people are, whether we think of it as being a theme or not, if you think of theme as like, this is what the author okay. trying to get across. No, no, no. It's like a certainly, motif, a recurring right. motif. Right. And it's because that's what, that's what, I mean, that's what they were experiencing. And yes. it's also leads to some great literature. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so I think it'll be interesting to keep an eye on the institutions because that the institutions is what gives a society and a culture its stability. Right. Well, what, what institutions or, or, and the other, I don't know what other words we want to think about, but like, what institutions are not in decay in this story in these first couple of chapters? Like, what is alive and growing? And 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 um, even the aristocracy the is being presented as off. Yeah, what, I think. Go ahead, David. Well, I was just going to say maybe the characters in their youth, but even their youth is juxtaposed with their choices um, and the effects of their choices, and certainly with the decay of everything else around them. So yeah, you can, it's you can't a dissipated be, youth. Yeah. You, you can never, like, and in some of them, the youthfulness is, you know, so, some of them were affected by world war one and those, you know, all that stuff is going on around them. So it's, you know, it's not, they're not really as young as they're pretending they are as innocent or whatever, as they're pretending they are. Yes. And even the dissipation, I would argue is a response to the changes created by the first world war. Hmm. Tim, go ahead with right. what you're going to say. I wonder if if there is any growing anything growing. Um, we only get a glimpse of it through Hooper, this character um, in the prologue, who's one of the kind of fellow officers. I think that that the mindset of Hooper is on the increase. I'd be hard to call, I'd be pressed to call it growing because it's hardly a. Um, fecund flourishing viewpoint, but I think it is on the increase and it will become more prominent as the book goes along. There's, there's this sense of, um, the bureaucratic man, the Mm -hmm, man mm -hmm. of administration, the man who follows the rules, but knows nothing about what his, the purpose of his life is about Mm -hmm. that sort of man is going to be able to thrive in this new order that's coming to bear in Western society, but the man of deep passion, of longing, of yearning for something transcendent, that man will be pushed aside. Um, and he'll be replaced by, yeah, the organizational man. Hmm. And there's also this motif in the prologue, trying to find where I wrote that, um, about this New England that has emerged after the war, right in between the two wars, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's trapped because the, the characters have that conversation of well, if we don't do it exactly right, we're going to catch it. They use the same language: we're going to catch it from the commanding officer. But if I don't do this the right way, I'm going to catch it from my manservant. So you've got this push from below and this push from above, right? And and they're just they're they're trapped. Like so that what the natural hierarchy has been been what this. Weakened. Hmm. Definitely after World War One, you got the aristocracy right. has never mm-hmm. recovered, mm-hmm. and and England is still trying to figure out what it is exactly, and it struggles in ways that Americans don't struggle because we never had that 
kind of society, but you know, what exactly is the aristocracy and, and who is the new man? And yeah, so I think Tim, you're absolutely right onto something that we're going to see the emergence of a new man. Mm-hmm. And in Waugh, <laughs> it seems to really despise that new man. Yeah. Who Who is an example of the, that new man in the beginning? In this is chapter? it Hooper? Hooper. Hooper. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So is Charles, what is Charles? I mean, is, is that contrasted? Who's the, who's the man that is the, the opposite of that? Is, I mean, is that Sebastian? Is that Anthony? Is that Charles? I mean, what? What's the con- what's the juxtaposed character? Oh, yeah, and look, see, I thought so. Wall actually says it. In the weeks that we were together, Hooper became a symbol to me of young England. Hmm. Yeah, right. That's a great question, Dave. That's a great question because I don't know that we have been presented with Hooper's juxtaposition yet. It seems like um, Sebastian is was given birth in that alternate world yeah. that created that alternate sort yeah. of man. But Sebastian seems like he's, he's trapped. I don't know. Trapped is not the right word because he's, he's volitionally stepping away from that world while also sort of longing for it. It seems to me. Yeah. And I guess we have to think about it. You know, Sebastian and Anthony and young Charles are, they're 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 not they're old by the time older by the time we are introduced to Hooper, as at least as far as the chronology goes, not within the story, but um, that means so so if Hooper is young England, then he then the the appearance of young Hooper seems to and Brideshead of course the place seems to spark his memories of what people what he and his friends were like when they were Hooper's age, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And he contrasts that on page nine when we meet, um, get the description of Hooper in, in my book, but I underlined so much of this. Hooper was no romantic. He had not as a child ridden with Rupert's heart or sat among the campfires at Xanthus's side. At the age when my eyes were drive to all safe poetry, that stoic redskin interlude which our schools introduced between the fast-flowing tears of the child and the man, Hooper had wept often, but never for Henry's speech on St. Crispin's Day, nor for the epitaph at Thermopylae. And then it goes on to just list all these, like, you know, monuments of heroism and courage of, of the British ideal. So he's a, he's a different kind of Englishman. And then, of course, that's interestingly contrasted or could be contrasted with the description of Anthony Blanche later and his adventurous youth. You know, obviously, we're not meant to look up to Anthony Blanche. He's meant to be something of a. But he's also cipher. not English, though. You know, he's an expatriate, so he's a different kind of guy as well. Mm. Mm, yeah, but but I guess what I'm saying is, you know, they look at him with a sense of awe yeah. for the way that he yes. li- his youth was lived out in Argentina and and all these adventures that he went on. And, it's very romantic. He's yeah, a very romantic exactly, character. Exactly, and there's a the way they look at him is romantic in in that way i mean yes um that there is something of a well he's like a lord byron you know he's yeah exactly yeah he's very byronic (laughs) i think we need we need to use that term byronic throughout the reading (laughs) his monologue kind of giving the backstory of sebastian's family is one of the like just most delightful sections of literature that I've read in years. Great scene. Oh my goodness. It's so, and this is just a touch of real literary craft by Waugh. He gives us this whole backstory that we've kind of been primed to want. Like what is the deal with Sebastian's family? We want to know more. And it would be very easy to just give a history of the family, but instead we get it out of the most flamboyant, colorful character, and it's just the most – it's riotously funny. And we're getting educated on the tension that is Sebastian. We're learning all of this valuable backstory information without getting bored with just sort of like a um, a long, dry history. Well, and we don't know what's true. At least exactly. I don't know what's right. true. Exactly. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, we don't know whether – we're supposed to trust Anthony and how much of it is uh, there's a rivalry between them. And so internally from a, from a, from a tension perspective, we just, we experience all kind of, uh, there's like, it's sort of chaotic as far as knowing who to believe and what to trust. And, and, you know, then when we get, 
But then Anthony proves his worth by predicting that Sebastian's going to say exactly what Sebastian ends up saying. Okay, I'm back. Angelina, I, David, are you there? Yeah. Um, I, I, I had said something that I wanted to get your response to, but go ahead. Um, I've got to say, I've got to take off quickly. Yeah. David, I would love to hear what your first, when did you first read Brideshead Revisited? Yeah, I was wondering that too. Uh, I think I was in college. I just read it on my own. I didn't read it. Actually, I mean, some, sometime in the last 10 years. <laughs> and did you instantly like it? Um, I think, I don't think I instantly liked it at first. Like, I think I had put it down a few times. But the last half of the book, I mean, blew, blew me away. I think about it all the time. Huh. Um, I honestly can't remember. I mean, I remember almost nothing about this book. So I'm so excited to read it again. <laughs> David, when we get to the second half of the book, I'd love to hear your memories about why why it blew you, why the second half blew you away and why the first half what did it move slowly for you? Oh, I think so. I think you know, some of the readers said things that even as I'm reading it again that I sympathize with that some of there's just references to things that I'm not familiar with. Mm. Um I I kept thinking that the writing felt like somebody who was steeped in Homer. Like there was something very epic poetry about the way he writes these long sentences with lots of parentheticals and the descriptions are very like felt very Homeric, um, which Mm. I think is probably also true of Victorian literature. But that can be something of a slog. And it might be that it was something of a culture shock coming off of Flannery O'Connor and some of the other things I've been reading. So we're getting Uh. some of these similar ideas, but presented to us in a very different way that takes a bit of... um, you know, you have to, like almost any great book, you have to kind of settle into the way the writer uses language. That's um, very true. And Wah is a wordsmith, he, but he also is a much different, he's a very English writer, whereas O'Connor is a very American writer, stylistically. I was telling my writing students yesterday, a couple of my writing students in a rough draft of the paper they were writing for me included these very long quotes from an author that they're talking about. And I just said, you guys... Part of being a mature expert writer is you have to keep the reader in in your voice. You have to keep the reader writing, it, reading your voice because when you jump into another voice, even if it's a wonderful writer, even if it's Plato or Flannery O'Connor or Waugh, when you change into someone else's voice – it's really jarring. It, it, it almost, you have to kind of like reorient. And so you have to use, so I was just advising them, use quotes sparingly. Especially I am long- so glad you said that. Tim, like seriously, you just, you just elucidated an, a whole lifelong issue with me. You know, we, we joke at the office that I, I won't read a block quote. I won't, I just skip it. And I think it's. Oh, I'm with you. I think it's from what you're saying. I, I, if I'm following the flow of the argument, I cannot switch and hear someone else's voice and then switch back to your argument. Just give me your argument. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't, and so, don't give me a big, long quote. I can't, I can't handle it. So I train paraphrase, 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 and pull sections of the quote out, pull phrases out, pull even a sentence out every once in a while. But paraphrasing is a, is a high art form, and I think it's what great writers – we're talking about essay writing. Paraphrasing is key. It's essential. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. That makes me feel much better. For, oh, yes. no, I'm, I'm exactly in your camp. All this time I thought it was a character flaw that I'd be like, I'm reading the <laughs> book and I see this two-page block code and I'm like, I just hope I can pick up the argument two pages from now because I'm not reading that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we, we are going on plenty of time here. Tim's got to get to a meeting. I've got to project i'm working on so i think we i think we've said enough about this the beginning we will dive in in much more depth into the story and these characters in future episodes if you have questions if you're listening along with us and have questions um please feel free to post those on the the facebook group we will yeah we'll get to as many as we can uh tim i'll let you go so any final thoughts i'm looking forward to the read to see if wall is uh, executing a a theology of aesthetics. That's kind of my main question going forward. Nice. All right, Angelina. I'm really intrigued by that. No, that's great. I, I love the things that we've uh, talked about today. I'm looking forward to seeing where he goes with this sacred and profane tension, what he's going to end up saying about these institutions and the decay of England 
if he offers an answer and if the answer to that is a theological answer. <clears throat> and uh, listeners, if you have specific quick char- questions about characters, themes, ideas, the way was writing, anything like that, we will be happy to address those as best we can. Um, the questions help us certainly guide our conversations towards what you are interested in, and that is certainly part of the equation. So uh, let us know if, you know if there's something you want us to talk about. Uh, thank you to uh, Roman Rhodes, to our friends over at Roman Rhodes and our friends over at CAP and the Scola, uh, Scola Academy. Uh, if you are interested in Roman Rhodes, head over to romanroadsmedia.com and don't forget to choose which of those units you'd like to win and post it on the Facebook page. If you want to learn more about Tim's classes over at Scola Academy, head over to scolaacademy.com and that is S-C-H-O-L-E academy.com. Uh, thanks for listening. If you haven't subscribed, please do. If you haven't left a comment or a review, please, or a comment or review or a starred review, please do. That's uh, very helpful for us as we continue to generate more shows. Um, and of course, just thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this Close Reads community. For Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Sourcing Institute, uh, I'm David Curran saying farewell. We will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.